how do you pronounce the name of this movie? I think I know, because we've discussed it last night. I'm getting comfortable with it. But what is the correct pronunciation? La Llorona. The Curse of La Llorona. Welcome to the UD. This is Factually Maybe. The Curse of La Llorona opens in theaters on April 19, 2019 and tells a tale as old as Hollywood itself. The white actor being thrown into a Latino set surrounded by locals as props, attempting to right the wrongs inflicted upon them by the foreign monster. Hollywood has been erasing color from leading roles since the moving picture first rolled. In some hilarious examples, roles written as non-white are routinely cast with Caucasian actors, yet surrounded by non-white people in settings that serve only as decoration, and people with a consistent lack of agency except when it directly serves the white actor's story. These films tiptoe lines of cultural fetishism and appropriation so often that most people, regardless of ethnicity, are desensitized or disconnected entirely from the optics of it. And while the conversation about inclusiveness and diversity in the arts has only gotten louder in recent years, it's 2019 and we have a horror film that appropriates one of Latino America's richest cultures and reduces one of its most enduring legends to the creature of the week, perfectly in line with white America's panic of the moment. And that's a goddamn shame because we're not mad enough about this. The story of La Llorona can be traced as far back as the 1500s, not long after Columbus and his fleet would arrive in the Western Hemisphere and it is an ever-evolving one, changing and bending and gaining new perspective with every iteration and depiction. But we can, however, strip it down to its core narrative, one about love, lust, betrayal, motherhood, and grief. Maria was a young, beautiful woman residing just south of the border. Such was her beauty that many men would attempt to court her and offer her everything from favors to money, but she would reject any commitment. That is until she meets a rich nobleman from north of the border. The nobleman would be the one who would successfully court Maria, offering her a life of stability previously foreign to her. He would go on to move her into a house in an area not too far from where she originally lived, and there she would give the nobleman two children. With time, however, the nobleman would begin to lose interest in Maria and would disappear for extended periods of time. One particularly long period would see the nobleman return home by carriage with another woman of his status. Maria would look in disbelief as the nobleman would greet his children and completely ignore her. The nobleman and his new woman would depart, not even attempting to look back at the family he would leave behind. It's at this point that Maria snaps, grabs her children, and heads north in search of their father eventually reaching a river. Struggling to cross this river, Maria loses grasp of her children, who would drown shortly after. This would devastate Maria. Lost in a cloud of betrayal, agony, and grief, she would eventually die in that same river. Arriving at Heaven's Gate, Maria is asked of the whereabouts of her children. Lacking a real answer, she is sent back to Earth, cursed to search for her children for eternity. The story goes that La Llorona will search for and find 
lost children, believing them to be hers, and drowned them in an attempt at closure she will never find. Her soul is bound to a cycle that will never end as punishment for her sins. To understand myth is to understand archetypes and the persistence of a basis in gender and social status. In the case of La Llorona, this goes one level further and introduces race into the equation. A poor indigenous woman being courted by a rich nobleman should serve as a warning to an entire demographic of people. In Latino culture, so many of the legends passed down from generation to generation find their basis in gender and religion. A post-colonial Catholic influence text informs so many of the stories told to the point that it is understood that many of its female icons can be classified in one of three archetypes, la virgen, la madre, y la puta. And each dictates both expectations and warnings against transgressions by women in a Christian patriarchal system of thought. The expectation that you are to be pure until you provide a man, your husband, with a child. The obligation of motherhood as a primary and almost exclusive aspiration to all women. And the threat of being shunned and condemned by society for committing any transgressions against the established order by the men in power. Interpreted as betrayal to your programming. It is important to know that even Christianity's most iconic female, the Virgin Mary, follows male thoughts so aggressively that even as she becomes the mother of God, it is through immaculate conception. Even the idea of a mother conceiving through sexual intercourse is suppressed. Feminine Terror and Stories is a time-honored tradition that pulls back the curtain on the crippling fear of men throughout history. Hilariously enough, the concern is a primitively simple one. Women's power of creation is equaled only by their power of disruption, often deeming their sexuality, menstruation, or pregnancy to a supernatural nature. Sexuality is a weapon, pregnancy is a trap, and manipulation is behind every independent action. Fears of feminine power circles back to castration anxiety, the irrational fear in men of being castrated literally or metaphorically, being emasculated or not conforming to male expectations. Even the lack of a penis in women strikes a fear in men, according to Freud. Male fragility takes on a much deeper level by examining established gender roles and reading between the lines of these stories, whether they be oral, literature, or film. The suppression of female sexuality can be regarded as one of the most remarkable psychological interventions in Western cultural history. The sex drive of the human female is naturally and innately stronger than that of the male, and it once posed a destabilizing threat to the possibility of social order. For civilized society to develop, it was allegedly necessary, or at least helpful, for female sexuality to be stifled. In short, if female presence is threatening to the patriarchy, gaining agency could prove downright disastrous to the social order. Feminism might as well be terrorism against men. And yet, even traditional feminism continues to fail women of color. Chicana feminism as a concept is an intricate one, and one that I couldn't even really go in-depth on in this one piece, but we can attempt to gain a surface-level understanding of it. I'll also be swapping Chicana feminism and Latina throughout, as it is a theory that I believe transcends nationality. By being an ethnic minority, she is a woman universally oppressed by men, an oppression further exaggerated within the Latino heritage. Her role is typically in the home, disconnected, and unconcerned with the world surrounding her. 
Catholicism further perpetuates women as inferior and enforces gender roles in the home. Marianismo establishes the Latina as the Virgin Mary, motherly, virgin, wife, and sex object. Chicana feminism reclaims this, repositioning her through reworking the feminine space. Often, discourse on Latina feminism rejects the notion of race, class, and gender as separate entities. For a minority female, these are all intertwined. There simply cannot be an examination of bias in each of these sections for an ethnic minority. It is not realistic. Life does not afford a Latina that luxury. Intersectionality becomes the lens through which instincts and discourse are informed. Oppression must be understood in wholes, not the individual layers. In the last few decades, the rise of Chicana feminism has opened the doors to new understanding and a renewed embrace of figures like La Llorona, recoding her as an icon of female rebellion against patriarchal rule. Authors like Sandra Cisnero and Cherie Moraga have modernized and placed these icons in settings and situations that trace the core of their legend, but allowing for new understanding. In cinema, we actually have seen reinterpretations of La Llorona's story told in interesting ways that retain the essence of the legend without the trap of cultural erasure. Mama, the 2013 film, places La Llorona in a contemporary setting and a gothic aesthetic. The decision to, in a sense, break up the story of La Llorona and share her characteristics through some of the main characters and conflicts and writing the story to not be a Mexican setting actually frees La Llorona from any preconceptions about the story, the messages within, and the outdated perspective. Instead, Mama is a figure to be heard and understood, she is empathized with, and an unexpected resolution to the conflict becomes all the more satisfactory for it. Closure is found. But at the end of the day, La Llorona is a Mexican story, a Latino story, and for it to be told as such by non-Latino people becomes a tricky proposition, if not done with care, respect, and a willingness to provide a platform for Latinos to tell this story. Coco is perhaps the best recent example of this, a Mexican story drenched in culture, told with love and respect and a deep appreciation for the people and stories told home by a white director, but one who made sure to bring in a Mexican co-director as well. A story told right, a massive platform, and a beautiful product that came of it. From the moment that I first pitched the idea that became Coco, it was imperative to me that we make a film that was as authentic as possible and as respectful as possible. In so many ways, how we see life is informed by centuries of Eurocentric rule our instincts on race, sex, social, and economical status. Beyond that, our family structures have historically been in line with Christian scriptures. Not only the idea of a man and woman as the one true sacred union, but the roles of man and woman in such a union, their rank, as it were. Looking at individuals as structure and the social ladder as a product of the past 100 years alone reveals increasing pressures brought on by their very identities. White, Black, Latino, Asian, Binary, Non-Binary, Wealthy, Rich, Working Class, Poor. It is within these identities that stereotypes, conflicts, social status, and financial freedom are often predetermined. It's not a controversial statement that centuries of slavery gave way to a system that placed Caucasians at the top of the American hierarchy, placing Africans firmly at the bottom. A system that was only reinforced immediately following the abolishing of slavery by way of government-sanctioned measures that ensure white supremacy through economical, legal, and professional powers, putting in writing the crippling limits on the black demographic that will not only stunt any real societal and financial growth, but cement the very perception of their place in society as less than human.
Job opportunities, voting rights, and even real estate were systematically rigged to oppress generations of black Americans to come. Segregation by way of legislation. These systems inform where and how the coming generations of immigrants of all ethnicities would look and behave. America told the world that power has a face and it is white. White is right. Racial identity is of particular issue in Latinos. Perhaps the people most influenced by white America, beyond having gone through the most mestizaje throughout history, young Latinos are, at different stages of their lives, grappling with the very core of their identities. Am I too light-skinned or dark? Is my Spanish or English good enough? Being gay in a machismo culture, being a woman in a machismo culture, leaving home for the first time and wondering if you're leaving behind your patria. Many young Latino kids are raised to be more American than their parents ever could be so they can have a head start in making it in white America's system, while also being faced with constant reminders to not forget their culture. This often leads a person to refuse to identify as any ethnicity, because you don't want to be associated with those people. It goes one step further, where racism stops, colorism takes its place. Beyond being marginalized for being Latino in America, within the Latino communities, being too dark becomes another obstacle towards acceptance and growth. Blanquitos y ojos claros become the way forward even within these communities. Spanish media only further perpetuates this perception, with the overwhelming majority of on-screen personalities and actors being of the light-skinned variety, even going as far as to put on brownface as parody or as education. Being too dark or indigenous looking becomes its own layer of pressure on top of being Latino, on top of being a woman, on top of being gay. And Latinos live in a machista culture, one that objectifies and abuses women, ridicules gays, and chooses violence against both as an acceptable solution to a dispute. And on top of all this, a culture that severely undervalues the importance of mental health, whether because of a lack of funding or conversation, or a willingness to understand. So many real mental health issues are simply dismissed as loco or loca. But perhaps worst of all is, as big and diverse as the Latino people are, from all places, upbringing, and color, Latinos are a people that refuse to accept that we are one people. We are quick to judge and quicker to distance ourselves from our brothers and sisters by the geographical borders that separate us, the variations of our mother tongue, and our proximity to the United States. Cherie Moraga put it best when saying, if, like black Americans do not forget they're black because the history of racism in this country told them that. If Latinos, Hispanics, you know, et cetera, right, are not convinced always that they're people of color. Like enough years here, they can be American. And one look into the arts highlights this lack of unity. The success of a Black Panther or a Crazy Rich Asians as displays of a united identity creating cultural moments underlined by box office validation has not given way to a Latino equivalent, except for, maybe, kind of, Pixar's Coco. Which brings me all the way back to The Curse of La Llorona. The power of metaphor, subtle or not, is that it allows for interpretations far beyond the text of the work, or the artistic intent and few genres of art allow for such liberties like horror does. Which is why I find it so disappointing but fitting that horror has always been looked down upon as a lesser form of art or storytelling, and studios consistently oblige its bias, crapping out Guantamil La Puena with small budgets for easy profit from audiences that simply don't know or don't care. That yearly dose of manufactured frights, jump scares, and unsurprising lack of substance or self-awareness. Now, I know I'm probably sounding like the same elitist assholes that ignore horror as art, but I'm honestly not above a good, fun popcorn flick. I just find myself constantly expecting more from studios, filmmakers, and film goers. 
we should demand more, and in some ways, we have. In recent years, as the collective consciousness and tastes have risen and found new enlightenment, so too has the quality of the horror genre. So-called post-horror has opened the door for audiences to experience and filmmakers to express an elevated brand of horror, marked by stunning, minimal, or hyper-stylized cinematography, nuanced stories, and fantastic performances and direction. And of course, just get out. The 2017 Jordan Peele classic which tackles race relations, racial identity, and the hypocrisy of white liberalism in the post-Obama era all at once. Get Out would go on to win Best Original Screenplay at the 2018 Oscars, perhaps signaling a shift in the stigma and the elitism that has held horror back. The gatekeeping is less so now. There is something to the idea of reaching across the aisle to start a conversation, of knocking on the doors of those who might be your demographic, as well as those who are not, of packaging a message in a language that can be widely understood. Communication really is the key to real progress and evolution, and few mediums allow for universal language like cinema does. With its combination of visuals, sound, writing, and performance, film feels uniquely suited to say something, through as many senses as possible to as many people as possible. And horror, with high return on investment, remains the most consistently profitable film genre. And in these scary, toxic, and rapidly changing times, there really is no better moment to both embrace horror and more diverse stories overall, and reject the bullshit that studios feed you. In the era of information overload and misinformation as weapon, it is almost imperative that works of art attempt to reflect reality as we truly know it. We need art now more than ever. Conversations about race, gender, sexuality, and politics are begging to be started, and clearly, studios remain somewhat reluctant in providing a platform for storytellers to tell these stories. So make no mistake, these stories are not Green Book. They aren't Bohemian Rhapsody, and they sure as shit ain't the curse of La Llorona. Thanks for watching. Like if you like, share if you care, and subscribe if you'd like to see more content like this in the future. We are the UD, and this has been Factually Maybe?